Wait a second. A movie with Saoirse Ronan, Florence Pugh, Laura Dern, Emma Watson, Bob Odenkirk, and Meryl Streep? <laughs> what is it, my birthday? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or TV adaptation. My name is Danny. I'm the film expert. My name is Laura. I'm the literature expert. Heck yeah. And today we have another barn burner of an episode covering such a a tome of a novel. I would say that. One that I did not read, but I watched the movie multiple times, and mm-hmm. we have some special stories that we'll comment on later about our screenings mm-hmm. of this movie. But yeah, why don't you go ahead and introduce it, Laura? Today we are covering Louisa May Alcott's American classic, Little Women. Not only American, but Massachusetts-based. That's right. You know I eat those stories up. But you still didn't read it. Anything, well, sure, but because it's, what, 2,000 pages? My version, I think it's 1,000. You're like 1,000. A small no, text, though. 777 pages hmm. in my version. All right, well. I have two versions not, of the book, but I'll cover that in my journey. Certainly not short. Um, no. It's about half the length of Stephen King's It. That's true. <laughs> yeah, but the movie in question, the adaptation, there's been a lot of them, yeah. but we are covering... The most recent adaptation, Greta Gerwig's 2019 adaptation of the same name, Little Women. I think this... Which should be the final stop and final word, this should be the last adaptation. And there'll be... (laughs) Well, maybe. It's kind of a cool thing that every 25 years there's a new new adaptation that kind of has a different lens. Yeah, but when you reach the pinnacle of anything, you shouldn't try to make anything better. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that's my opinion of this adaptation. Yeah, you've revealed your cards early. (laughs) You think it's the pinnacle. I do. I think it's the worst. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I've only seen this movie adaptation. I've seen clips of the 1994 version with Winona Ryder and Susan Sarandon, I think she... She plays Marmy. Yeah. But yeah, uh, this is the first full version of the story that I've seen. And maybe mm-hmm. one day I'll read the book. I couldn't get around to doing it for the podcast. It's just It was just a little too long, a little out of my wheelhouse. Although that's a little unfair since Laura read Dune. And that's certainly <laughs> a, a struggle for people who are not into those kinds of books. So props to Laura just in general for her... Hard work and dedication <laughs> for this podcast. So it's kudos to you. I love reading, so it's really not too much work. But I did actually read this book twice for this episode. Wow. So. <laughs> the pure heart and soul and integrity you put into this pod. Oh, stop. <laughs> yeah, well, I just can't. I can't match up. No, you're, you put a lot of work in here, too. You're anything but a little woman. <laughs> I mean, you are a little, and what am I saying? Oh my God, I've dug myself into a hole. Uh, Anyways, this is a great movie, at least. And obviously, an everlasting, timeless story. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, it came out in the... 1868. It was published in two parts. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's definitely enduring. I think a lot of people have very different opinions about whether the story is enduring But it's hard to argue with the fact that people are still reading it and it's still getting reprints 150 years later. Happy 2021, by the way. Yeah, happy 2021. Here's to a new year, a better year, although the year for us personally wasn't that difficult. We we still have some hardships and... Sacrifices. Yes, sacrifice that we have to overcome. And actually, I think that this book is a really good choice for the beginning of the year because if you're familiar with the book, you know that it opens at Christmas and it covers about 25 years of the characters' lives. 
And in fact, the book ends with a chapter called Harvest Time and ends in the fall. And there are a few New Year's parties that are covered in the book. So it's really a great cyclical storyline. And I think it also talks a lot about hardships and how family comes together in the worst of times and how everybody struggles with the relationships and stuff like that. But we can get into the themes later. I just think it's a good, it's a really nice book to open the year with. I agree. Yeah, it makes you think about your own upbringing and oh, yeah. adolescence as well as your siblings and your parents. It's a, a very intimate family story. Absolutely. And then it even gets into the complexities of marriage and leaving the home and becoming a parent and stuff like that. I mean, this book really does not stop with the childhood of Joe and her sisters. Do you want to go into journeys before we talk about the book more? Yes. Okay. You can go first if you want to. Sure. So I have been aware of Greta Gerwig since the beginning of her acting career. She was in a lot of mumblecore movies, which is very low budget indie movies that has more of an emphasis on dialogue and hmm. character opposed to plot. And in Mumblecore, a lot of the scripts are only like half written and there is improvised dialogue or a lot of improvised hmm. improv that goes into the making of it. And it's kind of micro budget movies. That's what. Mo so she's in a lot of that. So I've only seen a handful of those because I don't really like those kind of mm -hmm. movies. When she started directing films, and her first one was in 2017, The Great Lady Bird. Loved, loved Lady Bird. Yeah, came out. Personally. Her debut knocked it out of the park. Saoirse Ronan gave one of the best performances of the past decade. So I'm like, okay, anything she makes, I'm going to watch. And when I heard she was directing Little Women, I'm like, okay, I'm, I haven't read the book. I doesn't really seem like something that I would like. But then, of course, the cast list was announced. Stacked. I'm like, wow, this is as stacked as you can get. This <laughs> yeah. is like the Knives Out. Of, oh, no, actually, this came out the same year as Knives Out. So, mm. okay, I guess just another stacked the cast Knives that year. Knives Out of Little Women. <laughs> yes. Little Women is as, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, just an unbelievable cast. Florence Pugh starred in another 2019 movie, Midsummer, which is one of my favorites of that year. Mm. She was snubbed for Best Actress. She could have won if she was nominated, but huge fan of Florence Pugh. Mm. Obviously, Meryl Streep. It's cliche Classic. to say that, yeah, that she's the... <laughs> and you know what? We'll talk a lot about her, but Meryl Streep, always welcome. So when the trailers came out, it was kind of a, a done deal. I'm like, yeah, I'm seeing that no matter what. And we saw it at a special screening, which we'll talk about later. And that only enhanced our experience. So yeah, I loved the film when I watched it back in 2019. Loved it when we watched it again yesterday for this podcast. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, for me, my journey with Little Women goes back years. I think that's fairly common for people who grew up reading this. And the first copy of Little Women that I was given was a gift by my grandma Nini, who has been a champion of my reading journey since I was, I don't know, four when she started reading me and giving me the Little House on the Prairie novels. So I got this massive book from her for Christmas one year and did not read it for years. It was just a little too intimidating for me, I think. And so I ended up watching the 1994 version with my mom, I believe, the first time that I was ever really introduced to this story in full. And it honestly, unfortunately, put me off reading the book for even longer because, you know, it's a sad, intense story. And I think the version starring Winona Ryder plays up the drama. And, you know, it's devastating. Oh, again, full spoilers for this episode and podcast. It's devastating when Beth dies. But in the 1994 version, I just remember it being, again, they played up the drama. There was a storm going on while Beth was sick. Everyone's crying. Sort of this huge clash happens. And it was really overwhelming for me, I think, when I was younger. And so it put me off reading this book. And I didn't get around to reading it again until I think two years ago, actually, <laughs> when I started reading the version 
that my grandma gave me, the book that my grandma gave me, and I got, I found a couple of uh, typos in the book, which really pisses me off. And so I went to Barnes and Noble and picked up a different copy and found a couple typos in that copy. (laughs) So I had to pick up a third copy. And now I've read the book twice. And every time I read it, it just brings new depth to the table, I think. It is such an enjoyable book. And I do really wish that I had read it as a kid because it teaches you things at different times in your life. And I think it's a really great book to continue revisiting because Louisa May Alcott does such a great job of covering the time between adolescence or childhood and really through up until you become a parent. And and even past that when you're a grandparent because, you know, Marmy and Mr. March are obviously aging at the same time and they eventually become grandparents in the novel. So I think that this book has a lot to offer to everybody and I will definitely be rereading it. And it's also one of those books that just, for me, the emotion just never blunts itself. That's what I really enjoyed about this movie because as I said, the 1994 version was so overwhelmingly dramatic that it didn't really get to the heart of why this novel is special. And I think the reason this novel is special and the reason that I really react emotionally to it is because there's just so much heart and there's depth to the relationships and there's growth in the relationships and the people and the time period. And when we saw this movie, and as Danny said, we were very lucky enough to go to a showing with Greta Gerwig and there was a Q&A afterward where she was where we were able to hear her talk about the development of the movie, which was incredible. Yeah. And also the uh, movie's producer, Amy Pascal, was there. Right. Who's now at uh, Amazon Studios. Mm-hmm. And that was also a treat. Yeah. It was an absolute treat to hear Greta talk about her relationship with this book because she talks about how she used to read it when she was a kid and how she really grew to understand what it was about and the heart and how it changes as you change as a person. And I think that's what I really respond to in the 2019 movie. Like, she gets it, Mm -hmm. you know? And she's really... I think she said this when we were at the Q&A, but she was like, I have been steeped in this novel. And I think like she was basically at saturation. (laughs) And so this movie sort of comes out of that oversaturation. Like she gets it so much that she was able to like pass the story through herself and put so much new content in it, but still remain very, very true to what's in the novel. So props to her. I, every time I watch this, I cry every time i read it i cry i'm gonna cry now because i love the book so much yeah no the whole cast you can tell from the behind the scenes which i watched on the Mm -hmm. blu-ray we have they all say the same thing about how greta gerwig just understands this novel in and out and the additions she made were not only appropriate but enhanced material like for instance, that speech Meg gives to oh we didn't I didn't even mention Timothy Chalamet is in this oh, of course freaking Paul Atreides in the upcoming Dune movie right we'll see that one day oh uh, my the- gosh every time I see him I just know that if I were a teenager right now he would be my absolute number one crush oh, like I would it. be obsessed I mean I I'm obsessed with him currently but sort of as like a younger brother obsession <laughs> but like if I were of the age where I could marry him like I'd be actively stalking him right now <laughs> he's only a couple of years younger than us i mean are you, you trying want... to make me leave you <laughs> hey i'd understand it it's it's the chalamet we're he's, talking about he's in two of my top all-time favorite movies he's in this and obviously call me by your name which i also obviously we opened this podcast with that story because right. we love it so much but yeah. anyway shout out to him look me up timothy if you're hearing this and, yeah. <laughs> You don't have to. Um, and he's in Lady Bird, too, which we were talking he about. He isn't, yeah. He's yeah, a he's small a small role. Role in he's, that, which he's hilarious. But yeah, that's yeah. A great movie, so yeah. going back, that scene where Amy is talking to Lori about marriage and about how marriage is a transaction oh. and it's all about money. So I a, mean, apparently. Hello Jane Austen. Right. Yeah. So that was an addition that's not in the book from what I read. Right. And then also, according to Florence Pugh, it was a last minute addition where. Mm. 
this is kind of common for Greta Gerwig, but in the mornings she would rewrite scenes or rewrite lines that mm -hmm. she just thought of, you know, when she woke up, she would just be inspired. That and, brilliant woman. And yeah, she, that whole speech, according to Florence Pugh, was <laughs> a last minute addition that she gave to Florence Pugh that morning on a piece of paper, like a scrap mm -hmm. piece of paper. And of course, it's one of the most memorable lines in, in the whole movie of like, don't tell me that marriage isn't a transaction right. because it is. And a little bit on the nose, but certainly powerful given mm -hmm. Florence Pugh's performance. And oh. and it's also powerful because it's juxtaposed with her younger self just being just a complete brat, just an absolute yeah. wild child. And then the hard cut to her older self composed yeah. now in London, learning manners and self-worth and aspirations. And the realities uh, of right, a reality. women it, in this time. It's just kind of, it's so... Not necessarily shocking, but you don't expect that line to come from her, that mm -hmm. whole speech to come from her out of all people. It would probably come from M Meg or, or Marmy, but yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good scene to give an example. I mean, number one, I have a couple things to say about that, but number one, Florence Pugh, for me, honestly, steals this movie. I mean, yeah. Saoirse Ronan is wonderful, and obviously Joe is the heroine of the novel and the movie, but Florence Pugh as Amy, I mean, she is perfect. And like, even the way that she holds her head through the movie shows that she is thinking of herself as better than where she is and where she's grown up. And she has these aspirations of becoming rich and she sees who Aunt March is and what she has and that's what she wants in her life. And she just holds her chin up the whole time, you know? And that is such a great choice as a piece of character building. I mean, she's so incredible in this. And I think that Greta Gerwig talked about this in the Q&A as well, but it is so easy to hate Amy in the novel. Right. <laughs> I mean, she is such a brat. She's second youngest, but acts like the youngest the whole time. All she cares about is status and wealth and herself. And I mean, when she burns Joe's book, that is devastating, you know, and you just want to hate Amy so much. But I think what Greta Gerwig was talking about in her Q&A, she talked about how she wanted to show how Amy was flawed, but she's not a hateful person. And I think, again, that is that shows such a wonderful understanding of what Louise May Alcott was doing with the sisters. Because in the novel, I guess I'll, I'll sort of talk about the structure a little bit, but the novel is considered a building's roman. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but it's basically a style of novel that was very common. And it's basically a coming of age novel. That's just kind of the literary term for it. But I think it was a very smart choice for Alcott to describe these four sisters who are obviously very flawed. And each of them has a very distinct flaw that they have to overcome over the course of their lifetime. And that's sort of why it becomes such a successful building's roman, because they all grow and they all overcome these flaws over their life through their sort of Virgil character, their Marmy, who has learned all of these lessons and she's imparting on them the whole time. And so Amy's not supposed to be a hateful character and she's not supposed to be evil. There really isn't an antagonist in the book or the movie because all it is is just the cycle of these people's lives. And so again, Gerwig making Amy flawed but not awful and evil is so smart. Even though she does take that really drastic step of burning Joe's book and it's devastating and everyone's like, oh, like how could she have done that? You know, when she falls through the ice and Joe realizes that her anger has potentially put Amy's life at risk, you are totally on both of their sides. You know, it's not crazy for Joe to be upset with herself in that moment because you see that she's learning and she does love her sister, you know, and she does need to learn how to love her through her flaws because she is a great person. And then you see Amy change by the end of the book. She does a 180, basically. And even though she ends up marrying Lori, it's not for his money. You know, right. she turns down Fred because he has money and because she doesn't love him. And then in the book, there's actually a really funny line where she's talking with Lori about being married. And she said, 
oh, I, I like, I forgot you were rich. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and in that sentence, you're like, holy crap, Amy's a totally different person, you know. Right. And it's cool to see her constant, not rivalry, but kind of an irony in both Meg and Joe's relationship where Meg continuously one-ups her older sister. Like she goes to London when Joe thought she would. And then she, of course, marries Lori Mm -hmm. when Joe, of course, Joe denied Lori, but then came around to wanting him again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the irony being that it's too late. Lori already moved on or or found a different kind of love, as he's saying. It was funny in the Q&A, Amy Pascal her name is Amy Beth Pascal. That's so she right. said, she was like, yes, I was named after the bitch and the dead one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I is, forgot about I'll that. I'll always remember that, which is so funny. And yeah. fun fact, Amy Pascal, when she was a young executive, she helped produce the 1994 version of oh, Little Women. Oh, I didn't Women. know that. That's funny. And then now when she's, now she's basically running Amazon Studios, mm-hmm. more or less. Now she's like, okay, I want to put a more modern spin on this. So yeah, no, she was in that Q&A was talking about Amy and the importance of making her likable, but also being true to mm-hmm. her age and yeah. of, of adolescence, of the reckless cycle of learning the hard way. Mm, yeah. Both Joe and Amy are constantly learning the hard way about just life in general, about mm. Joe second-guessing herself and her love for Lori, or how Amy seemed to think that she was always in the shadow of Joe, so she would always go after her own goals and not think about her sister so much when she was very laser focused and Mm -hmm. that would cause her to take over dreams that joe or her other sisters had which Mm -hmm. could be perceived as selfish in a sense so those are some of the additions that amy pascal was talking about kind of implementing into the the movie yeah and i think that this book as i said before really it lends itself to having a modern spin be put on it and the reason i say that it's not a perfect book and there are a few flaws that bother me every time i read it and will probably still bother me but greta gerwig i think saw those flaws and said how can I make these a little bit better? And I think she succeeded in that by changing them. So for example, when Joe creates the school at the end of the story, she creates a school for only boys. In the book. In the book. And that always bugged me. And Greta Gerwig decided, hey, let's open this to everybody. And I really appreciated how she did that. That was sort of a modern spin. I also really appreciated how she changed the, uh, she did something really interesting with Joe's final story. So in the novel, Joe marries Mr. Bear and, or Professor Bear, and has a couple of children. In fact, I don't know if many people know this, but Little Women is actually a trilogy there are actually two follow-up novels that Alcott wrote, and the second one is called Joe's Boys, and it covers oh. the life of her children. But to me, that always felt a little bit forced, and I really enjoy the fact that Greta Gerwig did see that as a flaw and saw that Louisa May Alcott in real life was never married, and she actually did stay home and took care of her parents and also her niece after her sister died. Her sister was named May. So I think Greta Gerwig saw that and said, if Joe's character is loosely based on Louisa May Alcott, I don't think that she would have married Professor Bear. And that wouldn't have been her reality because as Saoirse Ronan says in the movie, she says, that's not what I'm interested in. When she's talking with the publisher, she keeps saying through the novel that she doesn't want to get married. Why would I have her get married at the end of the novel? And the guy was like, well, that's how we sell novels and that's romance, you know? And that's the, those just the, the things that women want to read. And I loved that addition in the movie, how Greta said, you know what? To sell the novel, she put that romance storyline into there but it didn't reflect how Louisa May Alcott actually felt and it didn't reflect her real life. Okay, well, this brings up an interesting conversation about how in the movie, Joe marrying Friedrich uh, or Professor Bear, it's up to your interpretation as to whether what you're seeing is just the book 
yeah. that Joe's writing or it's like actually happening. Right. Or both. It could be both be written into the book and it actually happened for Joe. Right. And it's very meta in the sense that yeah. the final part, Joe is writing the book Little Women mm-hmm. and you're also watching it at the same time and that whole conversation that she's having with the publisher, played by Tracy Letts, mm. great actor. He, he was wonderful. He was the dad in Lady Bird. Oh, I didn't know that. Right, That's yeah. Cool. So it's so cool because it's both a commentary about how Joe is literally selling her protagonist into marriage mm-hmm. just to, to please the publisher. But at the same time, it's like, oh, did that actually happen to Joe or not? Well, one of the final shots is of the whole family coming around mm. uh, the table you know, outside for Marmy's birthday. But mm. even that scene could, is fairy tale like mm-hmm. in yeah. its presentation. Ethereal. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, the first time I watched the movie, I thought, no way is Joe actually married in, in real life. Because mm-hmm. the whole movie, she was saying that she didn't want to get married. Yeah. And the ending, the meeting Friedrich at the train station was so fairy tale like Mm -hmm. and framed like a cheesy rom-com intentionally that i'm like maybe this isn't real but but the second time i watched it the reason i think that it actually did happen is because the scene when friedrich comes to the house to Mm -hmm. before he's leaving to california that happens before joe meets with the publisher Mm -hmm. so we're shown that scene before the maybe fantasy sequence starts Mm -hmm. so i think that the fact that we're given that information before that sequence indicates that well at least you know friedrich came by Mm -hmm. and there's a potential that joe met up with friedrich at the train station and then they did decide to be together Mm -hmm. whether it happened like the rom-com like it did in the movie or in joe's fantasy is up for debate but the second time around i did interpret it like okay the friedrich and joe are together at the end now a cool little fun fact when you were listening to the book i heard that dr bear was German. Oh, right. right. I listened the second time I read it. Right. Yeah. But I was confused because when I watched it, I'm like, oh, that character was clearly French. Now, in the movie, his country of origin is never mentioned or stated, but he's played by French actor Louis Garel, and the character has a distinct French accent, at least to me. But mm-hmm. he pronounces his name Friedrich, which is the German pronunciation. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know if they were just, just leaving it up in the air or what. But. I figured maybe he was like from Brittany. So he like, because France and Germany are so close that he's, he could have grown up in an area where French and German are very similarly. Interesting. But you know, he learned. Yeah. But I mean, he had like no indicators of the German accent mm-hmm. to me other than the way he pronounced his name. So yeah, I, I w- guess. Where it, is Brittany? It's like on the, the border. It's like the German French beach oh i see so i figured he could sort of have been from that right area. yeah but yeah just i i really love the ending because it can be interpreted in a myriad of ways and and it really adds this kind of literary flair to the totally. visual medium totally and i i really want to dig into how meta this book and movie are and i think that's another detail that isn't necessarily stated outright or it's it's subtle in the movie but it comes through really strong and i think it's because greta again has read the book so many times and she's familiar with the meta elements of the novel so i just wanted to point out a couple of quotes that really demonstrate this so the first quote comes right as part one comes to a close (gasps) and you're saying earlier part one was released in 1868 and then part two was a year late. 1869 but it it did come out in multiple parts because it was it came this is really interesting so the time period in which this was written was a period where literacy was on the rise and newspapers and magazines were using novels it this it actually goes back to how meta the book is because think about how joe writes these little short thrilling stories and she sells them to the volcano and the publisher keeps telling her i don't really want to read basically what she was writing for little women 
I want to read these thrilling things. And, and this is what our readers want to read, you know, just keep giving me the salacious stuff, basically. And that's how the time period was as well. Like I said, literacy was on the rise. And so newspapers and magazines were trying to sell as much as possible. And so they would parse stories into really short bursts. So people would continue wanting to buy their issues. And it's really, again, this period of of writing was also sort of the birth of the modern novel. And so some really high profile examples of how of these serial novels uh, would be Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo, some of my two of my favorite novels. But obviously, those are very, very long books that were parsed and read at very in very short bursts. And that's why they're so voluminous. Another example, Uncle Tom's Cabin, an American example. And Vanity Fair, which is by Thackeray, is probably the most archetypal example that you can use. Um, It's very long. I read it in college. I probably won't read it again. But that's just an English example. So there are, again, examples from all over. Oh, another French example would be Les Mis, another tome of a novel. But because it was published in so many pieces, people kept wanting to buy those issues. And that's sort of why early novels were structured in that way. So again, that's just sort of the background of serialized novels. That's why this is so long. And that's actually one of my critiques of the novel. Yeah, that... Right. Um, well, we'll get to sorry, the, the quote. Like I want to hear that quote. Yeah, okay. So there are two quotes that I was going to highlight. So the first one is at the end of part one, and it says, So grouped, the curtain falls upon Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy. Whether it rises again depends upon the reception given to the first act of the domestic drama called Little Women. So see uh-huh. how Alcott is literally saying, if you want more, yeah. <laughs> part two is coming, but you have to wait for it. And it's very theatrical. You know, it's going back to the very first chapter, which is called Playing Pilgrims, about Joe writing all of these plays and all of the sisters acting. And so when she says the curtain falls upon Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, she's showing that these characters have sort of a theatrical life that's being written for them and so i just think that's a real it's a great way of demonstrating how meta the novel is another quote that i wanted to share is between mr dashwood who works at the volcano and joe so mr dashwood says people want to be amused not preached at you know morals don't sell nowadays end quote and then louisa may alcott sort of interjects which was not quite a true statement by the way (laughs) so She's even commenting on her own writing within the novel, saying, like, I know that my story is very didactic and moralizing, which, again, going back to the criticism of this novel, people do actually find it a little preachy. Because especially with the character of Marmy, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of spelled out for you. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the lessons, I mean, lessons ranging from don't be selfish to be a good listener, to be the first one to give, to probably the most famous example that came out of this book, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I mean, I think my mom said that to me when I was growing up and I was like, whatever, I, like, I hate my brother. Yeah. <laughs> exactly like <laughs> Joe and Amy. Uh-huh. But you know, so again, those things are very spelled out. And I think especially nowadays, people do find that a little preachy. It's ironic because Joe also has a line in the novel that says, I like stories, but not when they're too preachy. Yeah. So Alcott keeps bringing attention to this. But I think this is a young adult literature novel. You know, I don't think it was ever really pitched as a novel for adults. But I think that's what's so charming about it, because it does change as the characters grow. And as I grow or as a reader would grow, I think as a young person, you're going to see those lessons and not necessarily implement them. But as Marmy sort of demonstrates throughout the novel as well, these things take practice and these things take discipline and they take relearning and learning the hard way. And so that's, that's what I think is just so charming about this book. It's like, it reminds me to be humble. And like, when do I not have to be reminded of these lessons in a lot of ways? And now, especially the parts between Meg and John and in their marriage really stand out to me now, because that 
never really would have rang true when I was a younger reader because I wasn't in the position of being married. And I was sort of in the position of Amy where I was idealizing marriage and how much it brings to your life and how much you get out of marriage. But as we see in the little vignettes of domestic untranquility between Meg and John, like, you know, when they're poor and they're struggling over money or gosh, there's this really sweet vignette in the book that's not covered in the movie where Meg wants to make jelly and she tries all day to make jelly and it just doesn't happen. It's not coming together the way that their housekeeper Hannah has taught her and she's absolutely devastated. She's basically wasted the whole day. And of course, that's the one day where John brings a guest unannounced to dinner. And she oh, like John. falls apart. What are you and doing, she's like, John? and then he makes this terrible, these like couple terrible jokes where he's trying to lighten the mood because she's so sad and devastated. And he like, he's like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. We'll just have like bread and butter or sandwiches for dinner. Like, and we won't ask for jam. And she's like, are you kidding me? And she like falls apart again. And like she runs over to Marmy and Marmy says, you know, sometimes you have to be forgiving. And like John didn't know and all this stuff. And like, again, those lessons wouldn't have rung as true as when I was a kid. Now they do. Like, you know, if, if you make a joke and I'm sort of having a devastating moment, I need to remember like all you're trying to do is lighten the mood. You're not trying to like rub in my bad day. So sorry, that was like a long explanation, but all I'm trying to say is this book does have so much depth to it that it just kind of keeps on giving as an adult reader. Right, and it can afford to be slightly on the nose or cover topics that you learn as a kid because as we mentioned, it's about adolescence and mm -hmm. growing through that yeah. a lot of times through the hard way and I can't believe we've been recording for what an hour and we haven't talked about the structure of the movie which oh, is yeah. completely different from completely the source different. material but the whole movie goes back and forth in time between mm -hmm. one time period takes place I guess in the present but then the other time period is seven years earlier mm -hmm. in their adolescence yeah. The movie cuts back and forth and it only announces the date once, you know, at mm -hmm. the very beginning where the novel starts at Christmas. The movie starts with Joe the first time she goes to the volcano and meets with Tracy Letts right. and sells her first piece. In fact, I actually marked the chapter because I wanted to remember where the movie started and it's actually chapter 34 of part two. Wow. So, so it really that's where, rewinds. Yeah. Right. The movie flashes back and forth. And admittedly, for the first time, when you watch it and you're not familiar with the source material or you haven't read it, mm -hmm. it is a little jarring and a little difficult to get on board with what is happening mm -hmm. and what Greta Gerwig is going for. But then, I mean, you don't need to be smart to eventually catch on and go with the groove of the movie going back and forth. And props to editor Nick Hoy, who spliced this movie together and really captured that feeling of nostalgia oh, and yeah. memory, because that's the reason why this whole pace and editing technique was implemented. Mm -hmm. It unearths that reflective sense of memory between the two timelines. And knowing what the girls are destined to do informs our gaze into their mm -hmm. adolescent years. And what the girls do when they're young informs their adult lives exactly. as, as women it, you know yeah. it, it amplify their youthful struggles amplify the immediacy in which we engage with their future yeah, selves that's so well said because i think a less skilled director and editor team would not have been able to do this successfully right and this could have been a mess this could have been an absolute mess because the book as you said is strictly chronological there is yeah. very little if any reflection except for when Marmy said, believe me, I've been in your shoes and this is how I've become a woman in the way that you think of me. So with the movie, like you said, it amplifies. And I think what's really interesting about this movie as well, like this is a long movie, but it's not too long. And I think it would have become very dull in a few ways because as I've talked about, the book is very cyclical as well. And I wanted to talk about that specifically in the example of how Beth gets sick twice. And there's sort of that 
bait and switch where you think Beth is going to die the first time she contracts scarlet fever, but she gets better. And then the next time it happens, she does die. And in the novel, again, this is sort of to show that life is cyclical and that Joe can't stop the tide mm -hmm. every time. But in the movie, I think the way that they structured it as being sort of two timelines that are both moving forward is that it doesn't feel repetitive, mm -hmm. even though that same storyline is almost happening twice. It's just sort of showing how the first time it worked out the way that they wanted it to and Beth didn't die. But unfortunately, the second time she wasn't able to overcome her sickness and it just the way that they cut it together, it doesn't feel repetitive. It just, it flows. And like you said, it's, it's the second time Beth falls sick, the sadness is informed by the first time that she survives. Yeah. And Joe keeps saying like, I've done it before. I can stop this from happening. But again, the sadness is just doubled because that hope was so high because it had happened before and Beth had pulled through. Right by far the most effective and saddest scene in the entire movie comes halfway through when it cuts to Christmas morning in the past right. when Beth has seemingly recovered mm -hmm. when it wasn't looking so hot and then hard cut to the present when Joe comes down the stairs in the exact time. same way yeah, in the exact does, same way yeah. in the first time but the future or at least the present is colored in a way that it's desaturated and mm -hmm. cold where the past is warm right. and, and saturated and inviting and you, you do that hard cut to the future and you realize that Beth has passed and I mean that is truly heartbreaking yeah. and I'm surprised this movie was nominated for six Oscars and only won one for costume design for uh, Jacqueline Duran well deserved oh, well deserved I was going to say, right. I mean, I hate wearing dresses, but watching this movie makes me want to wear dresses and aprons and mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> like hoods and coats and scarves. And I want to, yeah, I want to wear the scarf that Lori wears oh and just gosh. look out the window and yeah. contemplate life. But yeah, it was nominated for six Oscars, only won one, but it was not nominated for editing, which is like the whole linchpin to this whole yeah. thing. I mean, it's, it's literally innovative. I mean, it's subtle, but it's so smart the way that they did this. Again, they, they're not moving backwards and forwards necessarily. They're sort of moving forward in two parallel timelines, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And it's just really smart. And it's difficult. Like I said, I don't think a lot of people could have handled this correctly. No. It would have gotten very muddled, but I think the way that they did it made it really clear using really subtle things like Joe's haircut yeah. is timed at the exact right time so that we know when the flashback comes and the first time Beth pulls through, her hair is short. But when they flash forward, you know that time has passed because her hair is longer. Like, that is really brilliant. And just the difference in mannerisms between, yeah. you know, the women when they're younger and older. I mean, that all comes down to direction, which, right. which is, brings up my next point. Another snub for this movie was Greta Gerwig for Best Director. Yeah. She was not nominated that, that year. It was a huge controversy. Yeah, pretty pretty terrible snub. She was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. She lost to Taika Waititi for Jojo Rabbit. Mm. But yeah, the fact that she wasn't nominated for Best Directing, I've said this before, I'll say it now, but when every single actor in a movie, even the side characters, are giving A-plus performances, that all comes down to the director. Obviously, the yeah. casting director should be praised as well for putting those actors in those roles, but when everyone is just fantastic, I mean, yeah. everyone, that's all the director. And yeah. it is insane that this movie was nominated for basically everything but best director. Right. I mean, it, it wasn't even a crowded year last year. Mm -hmm. She could have, or I guess two years ago, right. she could have won, but she was not nominated. Even like the character, I don't know how the character of Aunt March is portrayed in the book, but Meryl Streep in this movie, I mean, Hilarious. She, she has she has maybe 10 minutes of screen time. Right. Maybe. But they are 
the, the best well scenes used. in the movie. Yeah. She, everything she says is hilarious. And Absolutely. of course, Meryl Streep is a legend and everything she does is gold. But right. how was she not nominated for Best Supporting right. Actress? And, <laughs> and again, I, going back to Greta Gerwig, having such an incredible knowledge of this book, Aunt March is not in the book a lot either. She has some zingers. Right. Let me be clear. <laughs> Aunt March is the very classic, you know, we've talked about this sort of character character in Jane Austen, yeah, the, but the Mrs. Norris character, yeah. the old crotchety... The feisty, practical-minded... Exactly. Yeah. And, <laughs> right, and she, ha like, every line that Aunt March has, however, is original to Greta Gerwig. A lot of the stuff that she says in the in the movie are not in the novel. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, for, for Greta Gerwig to take a character, such a minor character, and blow her up into this fully-fledged, developed, hilarious presence in this family's life is so masterful. I mean, the scene when Meg gets married. Yeah. And Aunt March is just at the wedding, sitting down, <laughs> obviously displeased because she she doesn't believe in marriage mm -hmm. at all. And when well, no, no. So she's upset that Meg is marrying John because right. he's poor. Right, That's and then she's upset. and Mr. Lawrence comes over to ask her for a dance, and she's just petrified by it. It gives us look like, oh no, I could never. Absolutely and then, not. And then young Timothy Chalamet, young Laurie comes ask for a dance, and she has that same reaction. Hilarious. And then later on when she's talking to Meg about her displeasure with her marrying the poor tutor John marrying John and John's right there and she's yeah. just shitting on John like I'm she's like I'm displeased for you clearly Amy is the only sensible person in this in this whole family right. and John's like right there yeah. she's just like how like she's like I can't believe you're marrying into a poor family yeah well then and then Meg comes back with this zinger and says you know even if I marry poor, I'm not half as bad off as some people sitting alone in their own massive homes. And she sort of looks over her shoulder and she's like, she's like I understand your meaning with that comment. And yeah. then like, that, those are such smart comments and they're not in the book. And I actually wanted to go back to Laurie because his character is also so well developed in the movie. It's so well realized everything from his costume to his stance. And I really want to in particular point out part of the movie that I absolutely lose it. It's so funny when we first meet, well, we're, we're first starting to meet Laurie as a student, as a young man, and he's being tutored by John and he's just met the little women at the New Year's party. So he's having a lesson in Latin and he's, <laughs> he's standing on a chair looking out the window toward the March's home and they're all sort of coming out with their... Christmas meal that they're going to go drop off at the Hummel's house. And he's standing, I don't know if people are familiar with this painting called Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog, painted by Caspar David Friedrich, but Google it. And he's basically standing on his chair with one leg <laughs> on the, char the chair arm and his hands are sort of held in front of his chest or in front of his abdomen. And so I'm telling you, Google this painting because it's such an incredible piece of character building because in that one shot, we see that Laurie is a romantic. He is already pining for Joe, who he will basically pine for until he falls in love with her sister. And he's flippant about learning. And John says something like, come on, like, like we're learning Latin. Can you just like take a seat for a second and be serious? And Laurie doesn't even hear him. He just, he completely like ignores the comment and says something about the girls walking out of the home. And he says, there's a girl out the window talking about Amy. Yeah. <laughs> and gosh, it's just like, her ability to pull that body language out of a novel where really all we're told about Laurie is that he sort of has an Italian mother and, you know, he's maybe has darker features like black hair. And that's really it other than, you know, his relationship with all these people. You don't get that physicality with him. And the way that Timothy Chalamet is able to bring this flouncing, clearly rich boyish irony and edge 
to this character. Again, it's a credit to his acting ability. I, I mean, he's one of the best young actors out there, yeah, fight me. But sure. also, no. again, going back to Gerwig's ability to direct that because she knew what she was looking for and she knew the kind of character that Laurie was, or Teddy, as Joe yeah. calls him. So, and then again, I, I just want to like drive this home with the dramatic way that he professes his love to Joe and that scene, honestly, I mean, is there any other scene where a man gets turned down and you just feel so heartbroken for both of them? I mean, it happens with Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice, but this is even more emotional, I think, because Joe so clearly wants to love him and they're such good friends and he's like pleading with her like you honestly don't think if we get together that you can't find the love in your heart for me and she's just like I I just can't like I've tried and I think we'd both be miserable and just the warmth of that shot in the movie is incredible. The dialogue is incredible. A lot of that is also not directly taken from the novel. It's very similar. The spirit is there. But the way that Timothy Chalamet is so emotional, and oh my gosh, the look that he gives her when Joe says something like, but, he like turns around and he's like, but, what, 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 what do you, like, (laughs) you know, just, it's so tender and it's so heartbreaking. And the only the only detail that I wish was in that scene is that when he's walking away from her in the book, there's a stile that goes over a, the fence, which is, this is uh, this is like something that I absolutely love. I love this little invention. A stile is like a little ladder that's wooden and sort of just takes you right over a fence so you don't have to go all the way to a gate. Mm. And it's so smart. Honestly, Google a picture of these because they're so cute. They're all over England and they're obviously very prominent in like rural areas. But he climbs over this little stile and sort of flounces over it. And I, I wish that little detail was in there because that's sort of one of those physical things that really, you know, makes these characters real. And and I don't think that this movie is hindered by the fact that it takes place during and right after the Civil War, which was, you know, is 150 years ago. The way that these characters are developed, you've, you just know how they're feeling because they're, these feelings are timeless and these emotions and these relationships are timeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also crazy how Timothy Chalamet wasn't nominated for Best Supporting. He easily could have <sighs> been. Yeah. But yeah, he was not nominated this movie. The other Oscars it was up for was Best Score, original score for Alexander Desplat. Wonder, wonderful great, score. Great score. It's, it's a mix of classical, but also that your standard kind of historical period piece. Yeah. It, it, it's very elegant. Best Adapted for... Greta Gerwig, Florence Pugh for Best Supporting, yeah. Saoirse Ronan for Lead, and then Best Picture. But yeah, Greta Gerwig is such a great director that she even got a good performance out of uh, Emma Watson, who Aww. we a couple of episodes ago we absolutely shit on for her, her. Yeah, her American accent. Her American accent much better yes. in this film. Yes, she only has a few slip ups like the word heart she can't really heart. she can't hasn't mastered the word heart yet luckily she only said it once in the film right but she got better at her can'ts yeah but actually a, a few, few I cons mean, a but... few con- well and i was going to say it's it is fairly ironic that all four women who played the four main girls and by the way amy is younger than beth i'm correcting my earlier statement gotcha but they're all British. <laughs> or, um, Eliza Scanlon is her name, who plays Beth, is Australian. Okay, so and they're Sir- all of the British persuasion. Yeah, and Saoirse, <laughs> Saoirse is uh, as Irish as right. you can get. <laughs> she, yeah. Yeah, and Saoirse actually has a slip up too in the word fight. She says like fight. But- uh, and, and when she's talking to Friedrich, there are a couple times when, when he critiques her writing and says... No, I actually, I don't like it at all. Yeah, <laughs> like it's, it's not good. Yeah, no. <laughs> her, her speech, her monologue, or her her speech to him is a little English. It's it's like, yeah. or Irish, I guess. But but yeah, no, I should say Emma Watson is good in the Harry Potter movies. I don't think she's a bad actress. She's just not, compared to the other three little women, yeah. I don't. I don't think she holds a candle to no. any of them, especially Florence Pugh. Who's I know, my absolute or favorite. I mean, or I think Florence Pugh and Saoirse are right up there, the yeah. best actresses of their generation, yeah. along with Meryl Streep. But, anyways, Emma Watson is good in this movie, which 
props to Greta Gerwig for getting that. <laughs> yeah. And Eliza Scanlon, she's great in her, you know, the role of Beth is obviously smaller, a right. uh, smaller oh, but she's role. she's so sweet. Yeah, so sweet yeah. and so timid and, and shy, but, right. you know. Well, and I think... Like, you know, we sort of talked about this earlier, but each sister sort of represents a different flaw. And it's so sad when Beth dies and Amy says she was the best of us. Mm-hmm. Because, and and it's not stated explicitly in the movie, but in the book, that sentiment, again, is sort of in the parts where Beth is talking about her death because she's very aware that she's dying. Mm-hmm. And she has this conversation with Joe about the tide and how she just, she knows that it's not going to come back in after she's gotten sick for the second time. And she says something like, I wasn't like you other girls, you know, you made plans for the future. And I just was never like that. I never felt like I was going to live past 19 or past this illness and it's it's interesting because we see that Beth's only flaw is that she's too giving. In fact, she contracted scarlet fever because she was the only sister that would go and take care of the Hummels when her mom had to go take care of her father. And so she sort of is the angelic one, mm-hmm. you know, with sort of the least amount of flaws, which is sad in a way her character is a little bit more unrealistic but it's written sort of to make you feel like she had already done everything that she needed to in her life. Mm -hmm. And so she was sort of, you know, sadly like the right sister, like it was her time. And the other sisters had almost more deeply seated flaws. And so it wouldn't have been their time to die. Yeah. So I think it's just really sad. And, And that's another thing that I really appreciate about the movie. In the book, Beth dies sort of over the course of part two of the book, and she's very aware that she's dying. And and everybody in the family knows that, oh gosh, one of the parts that honestly makes me cry every time I read this is when she's sick, she's sort of bedridden, and she keeps making these little gifts for school children that pass their family home on their way to school. And finally she says like, oh, my needle is so heavy. And she sets aside her needle. And that's sort of one of the last things that she can't do because she's so weak and she's so sick and she's dying. So the slow pull away of Beth's life is reflected so beautifully in the movie. I mean, that's something that really scared me, as I said earlier in the 1994 version, it was so dramatic when she dies. And in this, you feel that slow pulling of the tide sort of away from Beth. And as much as they're so sad, like the family is prepared for this happening because Mm -hmm. they've talked about it and they know it's coming. And it's so sad, especially when, what is it, the final shot? When the when the sisters are like walking out yeah, of the house, like, yeah, the last final <sighs> shot it cuts between that and Joe in the publishing. Yeah, house. and it's like Beth's death is what sparked Joe's interest in writing Little Women mm-hmm. in the story, and so to see the la- you know the three sisters walk out of the house, like it's like you you still feel like Beth is there, but of course it's sad because she's not. Right. Yeah. There is a funny meme on Twitter going around about the actress Eliza Scanlon because between 2018 and now, she's starred in about six movies or like five movies in a TV show. And in almost all of those projects, her character has died. Oh, so she's like the Sean Bean? Yeah, she's like the Sean Bean of... Actresses and That's yeah, funny. the the meme on Twitter is like, can Eliza Scanlon just have a good day? Yeah. Because Aww. in these, pro- not only is she dying, but she's like dying like of diseases or Aww. of like r- pretty harsh deaths. So yeah, yeah, uh, she hasn't died in everything she's made, but in most of the stuff she's in, she dies. So, so sad. Um, yeah, but I think we should start to close in. But as I've mentioned before, I'm a huge sucker for Massachusetts-based movies. Oh, and yeah. this movie was shot entirely on location, except for a couple scenes in the house where they needed to use a soundstage. Right. But almost all of it shot entirely on location in Massachusetts. Shot mostly in a town called Harvard, Massachusetts. Not That's not where the actual Harvard University is. Mm-hmm. It's... Harvard is near uh, Worcester, Mass. But it also was shot in Lancaster, Cambridge, Crane Beach, Ipswich, and Concord, where Mm -hmm. it takes place. 
Yeah. And yeah, I you know, I'm biased, but anything that just imbues the the sheer beauty of Massachusetts and the history that's yeah. just dripping out of every town. It, yeah. And Massachusetts is so stereotypically New England. Right. But I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I think that you know exactly, just picture a Massachusetts town mm-hmm. and, you know, what you have in your mind is what it's like. And you don't realize how beautiful and cool the state is until you leave it until you move away so yeah well, i have a soft yeah. spot for mass massachusetts movies so this yeah yeah this movie <laughs> re- really does it for me yeah well even just the march's house like it makes me think of your parents house or it makes me think of any house that we pass driving to your parents house like it's that very classic sort of boxy brown clapboard sided home that's so that's yeah beautiful and cozy on the inside right. and, 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 and very looks colonial on the outside. spring in the summer and the winter when it's snowing. oh yeah add and... some snow on that bad boy hot damn you got a, a portrait <laughs> yeah well and i wanted to talk a little bit about the symbolism and how greta gerwig uses the setting really successfully one of the things that she does which i noticed in my second viewing when we watched for this episode is in the very beginning when the women are carrying their Christmas breakfast to the Hummels, again, the poor German family that lives across town. And it was so subtle, but it's Christmas morning and they walk past a snow-covered church and people are going into the church. But I think it was very intentional that Greta had them walking by a church because it shows that the little women have brought the church to into their lives rather than going in and sort of hearing a sermon. Because, and again, I, I can't say this enough, but when you think about it, when you see that symbolism of passing by the church and rather than going and hearing a sermon, they're giving up their Christmas breakfast for a poor family in need. I thought back to the book And they do talk about prayer and they mention the Bible maybe a couple of times, but they never mention going to a church. And I think that's so interesting. Like I've read this book twice and I didn't even notice that, but Mm. Greta Gerwig noticed that Marmee's ability to teach is not necessarily grounded in religion. It's, she does pray and they do talk about God in some ways, but She's so devoted to the worldly aspects of spiritual growth. And again, sort of bringing in that whole buildings roman structure of the spiritual growth of these characters. It's not about God or religion or getting into heaven. It's all about personal growth through your life and becoming the kind of person who's giving. And in fact, in the very end, we have a scene between Teddy and Amy where Teddy says that it's such a shame for rich people not to share and not to make their fellow creatures happy. And I think that's, it's such a beautiful symbol. Like she didn't have to say outright, like we don't go to church, we help other people. She symbolizes those things by, you know, it's just, she's just so smart. And that one scene in particular, again, it's such a classic New England snow covered church, but they don't go in and that's not a part of their life. I just thought that was beautiful. Yeah. That's why this movie is such a cozy, warm, hot cocoa type of film, Mm -hmm. because even though it's kind of about how the trials and tribulations of our lives, they shape us for the better, it is just an enjoyable watch because you're you're watching these women grow and give back and just Mm -hmm. be they're just fun people to watch because they're genuinely nice people or you watch them become that and and you know that that's what they're eventually going to become because the movie starts towards the end Mm -hmm. so obviously there's the the woman empowerment angle of it which uh, which obviously can speak more to you because because i'm a man but for two hours and 15 minutes it's intensely rewatchable Mm -hmm. and really really heartwarming and yeah those those are kind of my final thoughts um well and i'm glad i'm glad to hear that because another criticism of this novel unfortunately is that it is so female centric that men have called it sort of a girls club or they feel like they're intruding on a girls club and i think to an extent that could be true for the novel i mean I understand in that way, again, I love it because I feel like I can really relate to those female relationships. And I do feel like 
and there's even an extra layer of blanketing to the coziness to this because I'm just so used to how these women talk and Mm -hmm. their frustration at being limited. That's something that we didn't even talk about is sort of the theme of how limited these female characters are. And, And another criticism that I have of this is that Joe keeps saying, I just wish I were a boy. And and she only wants boys in her school and she has two male children. And she keeps saying, life is so complicated for women. Like, I just wish I could be a boy. And if I were a boy, I could run away with you, Teddy. But as a woman, I can't. And I think the language during that time meant, I just want more freedom. I don't think it necessarily means that she wanted to be a man, but you know, reading that nowadays, it's just so sad because they were limited Mm-mm. and she couldn't do those things because she didn't see herself as having that freedom. And so nowadays that sort of feels very dated and I can see how men wouldn't really connect in a lot of ways to this kind of novel, especially because of the moralizing. It does sometimes feel like you're getting beaten over the head with it, but I agree. I think like this movie makes the novel very accessible Mm -hmm. to a lot of people. And I think that with the right editor, this would be a wonderfully abridged novel. Like there's a lot of stuff that I feel like, for example, when Amy goes to Europe, there are like 10 chapters of her just writing letters home. And you don't necessarily get more from her relationship with Teddy to lead to their marriage after that. So I think like some of those things really could have been cold and it would have been the same novel. Right. (laughs) So that's my only sort of as my like wrapping up thoughts. I think this novel should be shorter. And it's unfortunate that so many people like myself are deterred from it because it is very long. And there's not, as you say, there's not a lot of plot. Mm -hmm. So it's tough. And if you really don't have that personal, emotional connection with the characters, I can see why a lot of people would shy away from this as the American classic that it is, you know. So I would say I give this a three and a half out of four stars. The book. The book. And the movie, unquestioning, four out of four stars. Greta does everything that I wish this novel did even better. (laughs) She cuts things out. She elongates things that needed to be delved into a little bit more. She has the perfect cast. Oh, except for Mr. March. I actually did not like... Oh, Bob Odenkirk. Uh, He's a great comedic actor, great in Better Call Saul. But yeah, he kind of sticks out. He just doesn't fit the time period. He doesn't seem like he belongs there. Yeah, and all of his lines are great as dad lines. Mm -hmm. They're wonderful. She did a great job writing the dad character. But yeah, I don't know. He's the only person that I had. But anyway, four out of four stars. I love this movie. I feel so honored that I got to watch Greta Gerwig and Amy Pascal. Pascal? Pascal, yeah. Talk about this movie and see how much passion they put into this movie because I have such a love for this story. So sorry, I'll stop talking. I just, I love it. That was a treat seeing that and I'll remember that forever. But I was anticipating giving this a three and a half out of four upon rewatch because Obviously, we had the magical experience that was the screening, but I remember thinking, like, even though I loved it, it wasn't, you know, the story itself is still not my jam. So rewatching it, I bet I'll still love it, but I won't, like, fully come around to the four to four stars. But we rewatched it, and those two hours and 15 minutes flew by. I still love it as much as I did the first time. Four to four. We're in agreement there. Yeah. I cried just as much this time as I did the first time in the theater. And I was a mess in the theater. So I was yeah. a mess at home. Boy, was she. And yeah, if you're watching the the latest film, make sure to have a box of tissues oh, on yeah. the ready. And a nice cup of tea and some blankets. Or and, hot cocoa. Or coffee and some Christmas cookies. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, maybe some dried oranges. We had some. Sure. And, and they, no, they, they hang them in their Christmas oh, decorations. Cool. And we were eating them while we were yeah. watching the movie. And anyway. Pairs well. Yeah. All right. Well, no, well, orange as well. That you got me with that. That took me a second to figure out what you're doing we'll there. leave that beat in there. Yeah. We'll see you next week when we're covering Apocalypse Now. And of course, the source material, Heart of Darkness. And then we're also covering a loose adaptation of Heart of Darkness, Ad Astra. That's right. Oh, I was going to say, do you want to like keep that a 
secret. Oh, well, it's out in the open now. Okay. So, yeah, mega episode coming soon. And it's a novella, so go ahead and treat yourself to this one. It's, yeah, it's 70 dark. pages. It's dark and dense, but it has some very lasting consequences. I think we still struggle with things that Joseph Conrad wrote about in the novella. Right. So pick it up. Pick it up. Why don't you? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. See you next week.